Today we come to Ephesians chapter 3. Uh, we are in a sermon series on identity. Uh, Paul writes this letter um, to more than 500 churches around Ephesus as the capital city. And this is an open letter. And so it is to those churches, but it's to our church again today. So let's share in God's good word together. Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. There are a few who move toward the sounds of chaos, ready to respond at a moment's notice. And when the time comes, they are the first to move toward the sounds of tyranny, injustice, and despair. They are forged in the crucible of training. They are the few, the proud, the Marines. Which way would you run? This advertisement came out in about 2012, and it's meant uh, as a recruitment tool for the Marines. But have you ever stopped to think about that this is also true for you, for Christians. Every person that claims the name of Christ takes a vow to fight injustice and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves. That is the vow of every United Methodist person who comes into church membership. That's what you say. You stand here in front of, the, in front of your church family. You say, yes, I will run towards despair. I will run towards injustice. I will run towards tyranny. I am one who runs towards the pain and the suffering of the world, not away from it. That's who we are as people of God. People who serve, people who love, people who care, people who go towards suffering to make a difference in the world. So the question this morning that we continue to look at this month is, who are you? Which way do you run? Who are you, really? What is that inner character? formed by Christ. Who are we? Because as we look at these things together, it's not really just who I am. It's who I am within you as the body. Who are we together? What is our identity as a church, as the people of God, as the church, uh, both as Acts 2 and also as the church universal, the church all around the world? Who are we together? So we're in our third week of this series on identity. We're moving through the book of Ephesians. We've done Ephesians 1 and 2. Uh, and in those first two weeks, we have looked at these questions uh, posed by Henry Nowen a number of years ago. He says that the world says that I am what I do. Will you say that with me? I am what I do. Is that true? No. You're much more than that. And if you're not more than that, you're in for a really big trouble when you retire. Right? I see it all the time. People retire, and then the wheels come off because they don't know who they are without their vocation. So you've got to be more than what you do. Other folks have believed this. I am what I have, right? He who dies with the most toys wins. You've heard that. That's not true, is it? No, not at all. Or maybe you've heard this one. I am what others say about me. Right? This is very, very difficult, particularly in our young people in a, in a world of Facebook and Instagram. 
Oh, I got lots of likes. I must be a good person. Nobody liked that. What have I done wrong? Right? And today I want to come to something that I think is super important and that you must know. And that is that the world will tell you that you're nothing more than your worst moment. And you'll have that voice in the back of your head. No, 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 no. You're not okay. You're not, you're not a good person. Remember that thing you did last week or last month or last year or 10 years ago or 20 years ago? That's who you really are. And Christ says, no, that's not who you are at all. And I want to share with you what I think is one of the more important stories of the entire Bible. And I'd like for you to place yourself in the story. Because if this were true, that we're nothing more than our worst moments... Basically, no one in the Bible other than Jesus would have ever contributed anything. Right? We, we are much more than our worst moments. And, and most of our best work comes on the backside of our worst moments. Because God has saved us from those moments. And so I want you to think about your life as it sits inside uh, the stories that we'll share. These true stories from the book of Acts and the book of Ephesians. I, I want to talk a little bit about the person who wrote more than two-thirds of the Bible, of the New Testament. And, and it starts in Acts chapter 7. This is about a man named Saul. It says, Then they dragged Stephen out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named, what was his name? Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, the first martyr of the faith, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he died. And Saul approved of their killing him. He was right there. That day a severe persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. But Saul was ravaging the church by entering house after house, dragging off both men and women. He committed them to prison. To prison. This is Saul who will become Paul who wrote Ephesians. Now, some scholars will say it might not have really been Paul. It might have been a follower or disciple. That doesn't really matter to me because the message is the same and it's written in his voice and from his life. So... The scripture continues in the book of Acts. These are the acts of the Holy Spirit through the people of God. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for the letters to the synagogues at Damascus, Syria, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, that's the name of Christians, the very first name that were given to us, men or women. This is, this is not your normal bad guy. This is a bad, bad guy. Men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Damascus is not close to Jerusalem. He's going to go to Damascus. He's going to grab folks. He's going to chain them up, and he's going to drag them to Jerusalem. Now, as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he asked, who are you, Lord? And the reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Get up and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. And for three days, Saul was without sight. He was completely blind. He neither ate nor drank. Now, there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he says, here am I. And then he answers, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. I mean, his his terrible reputation had preceded him. How much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go for, read this with me. He is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles. Now, Gentile simply means not a Jew, right? Anybody who isn't Jewish is a Gentile. And kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and he entered the house. He's being faithful to what God's asking him to do. And he laid his hands on Saul and he said, Brother Saul, 
That might be the greatest miracle in the Bible. Brother Saul. I mean, this is the man that he is terrified of. This is the one that he knows has taken uh, his brothers and sisters in Christ and put them in jail and put them in prison. He's terrified, yet he goes to him and he says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and his sight was restored. Then he got up, he was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. And for several days, he was with the disciples in Damascus, in Syria. And immediately, he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. That's what we call life change. Right? He was this way, taking Christians, imprisoning them, killing them at their stonings. And then he has an experience with Jesus, and he realizes that he is who he says he is. That he had been wrong all along, and that he is the Son of God. Not only that, there was a lot of fruit that came from it. All who heard him were amazed, and they said, is, not, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem among those who invoked his name? And Saul became increasingly more powerful and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Messiah. He really was God's son. So here's the thing. Some people have made a big deal about the name change between Saul and Paul. Um, You can if you want to, but most scholars will say simply, this is just a difference between whether you're speaking one language or another or dialect or another. Saul in Acts 13, 9 says, also known as Paul. They're interchangeable. just depends on what language you're speaking. And he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, after he begins to teach and say that these folks that were completely outside are now inside, that Jesus is the Messiah and it's open to everyone, everybody on the planet. We're all one family in Christ, regardless of where you are, race, nation, any of it. And, and Paul is saying this to everybody. And he's going around starting churches. And he asks to meet the elders of the church in Ephesus. Now, if you don't know where Ephesus is, it's in modern-day Turkey uh, today. It's right there. Um, and Paul would start churches. See, Jerusalem's down here. And so he made his way up, and he, he would take a boat, and he'd, he'd start all these churches around Ephesus and Thessalonica and Philippi, uh, around the Corinth, uh, and over, you know, over in Greece. And then, ultimately, he'd make it over to Rome. So this is what he's doing. Now, he, he's about to, he's, as he goes to each of these churches, he's actually taking up an offering because there's some, some very serious persecution going on in Jerusalem of the Christians. They don't know whether it's a famine or whether it's disease or whatever, but Paul is taking up an offering to take back to the first Christians at Jerusalem. And as he's about to head back to Jerusalem, he goes to Miletus and he sends a message to Ephesus where he's been and he's asking the elders of the church to meet him. Well, if you're like me, you didn't really know where Miletus was. Oops, sorry. And um, Miletus is right here, just, just a few minutes away um, from Ephesus by car, probably uh, you know, half a day's journey walking. And so he asks to meet them. Why is he asking to meet them? He's asking to meet them because he knows that he's headed back to Jerusalem. He's going to say goodbye. These are people that he's lived with for a number of years. He loves them. He cares about them. And before he goes back to Jerusalem, he wants to say goodbye. And then he says this in Acts 20. And now as a captive to the Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. He's concerned. He knows that God's called him there, but he's not sure what's going to happen. And like I said, he's on his way to Jerusalem to deliver the monetary help. He's taken up money from all these other churches. He's going to take it back to Jerusalem, and he's on his way. Now, the only thing that he thinks he knows about Jerusalem is that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city that he goes, that imprisonment, and persecutions are waiting for me. So when he goes back to Jerusalem, what's he expecting? That he's going to be what? Imprisoned and persecuted. 
All right. So that's what he's thinking about. Back to the map. If I'm in Miletus, right, right here, and persecution and jail time are down here, which way am I going? That way, right? I'm not going towards Jerusalem. I'm going away from Jerusalem, not Paul. Why not? Well, the context that he writes um, to the letter to Ephesians is this. He's in jail in Rome awaiting trial before Nero. You may have heard the phrase, uh, Nero fiddled while Rome burned. Nero was such a terrible ruler that many scholars now believe that he intentionally set Rome on fire himself so that he could go back and remodel uh, pieces that he wanted to build himself. But he couldn't take the blame for that, of course, and so he decided to blame the Christians. And so the persecutions on the early church uh, was never worse than under Nero. They would dip them in wax and use them as torches. They would saw them in two in the public square. Um, They would crucify them just whenever they wanted to. And so what happens uh, in this time is that Paul then is taken from Jerusalem. You see this down here, Jerusalem down here. And he is taken up and he's on his way to Rome. They stop through here. Malta, they have a huge shipwreck. Uh, They get back and they're able to get to Rome. And then he's imprisoned. And he's actually chained to the wrist of a Roman soldier who was his guard. And so as Paul writes or Paul speaks, there's always a Roman soldier right there chained to him. That's how they would do it. And the Roman soldier, if he lost Paul, if something happened to Paul on his watch, he would die too. So Paul is awaiting death, but as he awaits death, he's chained to a Roman soldier, a Roman guard. Now this is interesting to me, that when Paul writes, he doesn't call himself a prisoner of Rome, does he? No. He says, I'm a prisoner of what? Or for what? For Christ. Now, this is an important point, friends. He is literally chained to a Roman guard, and he says, no, 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 I'm not a prisoner to this guy. The whole reason I'm here in the first place is by my choice, and I'm a prisoner for Christ. Now, why is Paul in prison in the first place? How'd he get there? See, all all these things, it's really, these, these things don't make sense unless you sort of know the context within which they're made. So when he gets back to Jerusalem, remember he's headed back to give them the offering. What happens next is that they say to him, hey, we've heard that you've been talking about that everybody's equal now. Everybody's an heir. Everybody's in. Everybody's included. So we don't think you're being faithful to your Jewishness. And we have four men who are under a vow, under a Nazarite vow, uh, which was unique to the Jewish community. And, And this is where they wouldn't cut their hair. And so they say to Paul, to prove that you really are still Jewish... Join these men, go through the rite of purification with them. This is a 30-day trial. And pay for the shaving of their heads. Thus, all will know that there's nothing in what they've been told about you, but that you yourself observe and guard the law. So they've heard that Paul is opening up this way to God, to everybody, and they don't like it. They're like, prove yourself. And so this is what he's agreed to do. Um, After 30 days, they're going to cut their hair, and they're going to take sacrifices of a ram. They're going to take a sacrifice of of a lamb. Um, They've got to spend 30 days um, without cutting their hair, without eating any meat, without drinking any wine. I know that's really hard for some of you now. You're like, 30 a month without wine? And so this is the deal. This is the vow. A ram, a basket of unleavened bread, they're all going to be offered in in this burnt offering to the temple at the end of the 30 days. And to prove Paul's Jewishness, he's agreed. He's already done all this before, but he's going to do it again with these four guys, and he's going to pay for it all because he's wanting his witness, right, to be authoritative to the Jews. He said, look, I know how to do this. I'm one of you. I can do this. But it was Pentecost, and Pentecost was a festival 
um, where everybody would come to make their offerings at the temple. Now, here's the temple, and the court of the Gentiles is on the outside, down here, right? And then there's a court of women, and then inside here is a court of men, and inside here is the altar, and inside here is the Holy of Holies. Now, that's, that's one rendering. If you look at here, you can see that the court of the Gentiles is outside, down here, but all of this is inside. This is actually in a building in the temple. And here's the great altar here. Uh, and this is where the animals uh, would hang out to be sacrificed. Now, if you go on in, uh, you can see the altar is red where they're going to sacrifice the animals. This is where the animals are hanging out. The court of Nazarites are right here. You would spend the last seven days of this vow in right here, all seven days. And then, if you were lucky, somebody would make the offering for you. You could get in the holy place or the most holy place. Now, notice that Gentiles are nowhere near this. They're way on the outside. They can't even come inside. So the scripture says this, When the seven days were almost completed in the temple, the Jews from Asia, Ephesus, who had seen him in the temple, they stirred up the whole crowd, and they seized Paul, and they shouted, Fellow Israelites, help. This is the man who's teaching everyone everywhere against our people, against our law, against this place. More than that, he's actually brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. Is that true? No. It's not true. None of it's true. In the same way that they lied about Jesus and got him killed, now they're lying about Paul. None of this is true. Now, last week we looked at this. There's this little wall right here. On the outside, these are Gentiles. No Gentile could cross this. And, and here there are signs all along here that say, if you're not of pure race, Jewish blood, and you step across here, we're going to kill you. Plain as day. They put it in lots of different languages so that everybody knew if you were bold enough to step over here instead of here and you weren't of pure Jewish blood, they were going to kill you. And Rome would let them. It was such a big deal that Rome was like, yep, you want to kill them? Go ahead. Now, here's the trick. They knew that Paul had been in Ephesus. And they knew that Paul was friends with a man by the name of Trophimus, the Ephesian. And, and they'd seen this guy in, in the city because he'd come in for Pentecost. And they supposed, they thought that Paul had brought him into the temple, even though he had not. Because he was a devout Jew, he wouldn't have done that. Then all the city was aroused and the people rushed together and they take Paul and they drag him out of the temple and immediately they shut the door. And the reason they shut the door is because they're going to kill him. And you can't commit murder uh, at the temple. That would be, make everything unclean. And so while they were trying to kill him, Word came to the tribune, the Romans, of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in this uproar. And immediately he takes the soldiers and the centurions and he runs down to them. And when they see the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Ironic that Rome was actually one that saves his life because their justice was blind in this moment. So here's the thing. We've got Paul now. He's been saved kind of by Rome. He's in jail. He's chained to a guard. And he says he's a prisoner for Christ. Now you say, well, how in the world am I supposed to make sense of that for Edmond, Oklahoma in 2018? Well, let me say it to you this way. When we're going through hardships for the sake of Jesus, we can either think of ourselves as a victim of the world or a champion of Christ. That choice is ours, right? Now, so that I'm really clear, I don't mean that somebody said happy holidays at Target. That's not what I mean. That's just annoying, it's not persecution, okay? Today, there are still hundreds of thousands of our brothers and sisters all around the world that to say that they follow Jesus means their life is at risk. And they need our prayers. They need our help. They need our support. They need our love. And we get to choose how we respond to Christ's love. 
We can either say, oh, you know, it's so hard to be a Christian, or we can say, no, I'm following Jesus. I'm following Jesus. It's a choice that I'm making. And so in Ephesians 3, verse 1, it says this, this is the reason that I, Paul, am a prisoner for who? For Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. It's not just for himself. He already knows Christ. So Paul's identity is this. He says, I'm a prisoner for who? For Jesus, his choice for who? For the Gentiles, for those who don't know him yet, for those non-religious. So the problem is, though, that the Jews at that time despised what they would think of as useless and worthless Gentiles. That's how they saw everybody, which includes you and me. Now, here's where it gets harder. Who do you despise? Or who do you, in your business or in your life, use less? Are there people that you just don't, you know, you tell your HR, let's use them less. Right? Just, they just make me uncomfortable. Let's use them less. And when you use someone less on purpose, what you're really saying is that they're worth less. Now, I know I'm stepping on some toes here, but this is where it gets real. Make no mistake that Paul's very life was on the line because he was using people in a good way that all of his friends had said, you can't do that. And he was bringing people and giving them value that the world had said they don't have value. And we're to do the same. So here's the thing. Pre-Jesus, before Jesus, if you were a non-Jew, you were to be killed. That's how they looked at it. It was kill or be killed. The Jewish people were chosen. Everybody else was not. Uh, if you don't believe me, you can look at the prophet Isaiah. He says this, for the nation, well, hold on, back up. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. These nations shall be utterly laid waste. That's how they understood people that weren't a part of the Jewish culture and community. And then Paul has the audacity to say, no, no, no. Gentiles have become fellow what? Heirs. Now, hopefully this hasn't happened to you, but I, sometimes families tell me this. Even people my age, their parents get divorced, and then they remarry. And sometimes the people that they marry have lots of kids. And then, particularly if you're an only child or you're like me, you have one other sister, when that trust, that will gets rewritten and includes the 28 other kids that you, brothers and sisters, you didn't have, how do you feel about it? They're not outsiders. They're fellow heirs right? He's messing with the very identity and who people are and what they think they deserve, what they think is their right, what they think is their privilege. And Paul says, no, 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 we're all family now. And they hated him for it. He says this, in former generations, this mystery was not made known to humankind. This is Paul now. As it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That is, the Gentiles have become fellow heirs. Heirs, members of the same body. Are you kidding me, Paul? Same body, share in the same promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. Everybody's welcome. No one had ever dreamed, no one had ever dreamed that God's grace and privileges and love were for all people. Until this time, absolutely blowing their minds. We cannot get our minds around this because we've grown up in a world 2,000 years post-Christ where we're like, well, yes, we belong to one new humanity created in Christ Jesus. And so Paul says, of this gospel, I've become a servant his whole life is poured out for this, to the gift of God's grace that was given me by the working of his power. And so the word to us today is that we have become servants, not by our own doing, but by a gift of God's power, God's love, God's grace. 
And we are servants by God's power through the Spirit. If you try to just gut this out and love everybody just in your own want to, you'll fail at it. It's way bigger than that. It's bigger than our own ability. And that's why Paul says that God's grace is something we don't boast about. It's a gift to us. And then he says this, and this is really interesting. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. Wow. Every family, every family in heaven on earth takes its name. And I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through the spirit, God's very spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and you are being rooted and grounded in love. Now, this bow my knees, we read right past it because we think that's how people prayed. That's not how people prayed in Paul's day. People in Paul's day as Jews would pray standing up with their eyes open, with their hands raised. As praise to God. That's how the early church prays. That's not what Paul's doing. What Paul's saying is he is on his knees. He is begging God in the way a poor man begs a rich man for food. Please, God, power them. Please, God, help them. I know they're hurting. I know they're starving. I know that Rome's out to get them. I know that this is the hardest thing that's ever come our way. God, help them, power them. You see the difference? It's not a Sunday morning, oh, yeah, I think I'll pray for you. It's not that kind of a thing at all. He is begging God that you and I might be here today. He says, I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, everything that God has for you. My translation would be this. Christ's love is wider than our prejudice. It is. Whoever you think still outside, Christ says, no, it's wider than that. It's longer than your trial. You think God's forgotten you? He hasn't forgotten you. Because the last thing is never the worst thing. What you're going through is not the end. We're a part of something much bigger than this life. It's higher than your best thought, so we don't need to get too big for our britches. And it's deeper than your darkest sorrow. You don't have to worry. God can find you and pull you up from wherever you are. But again, we don't do this alone. It's something we do together. Our founder, the founder of the Methodist movement, is known as John Wesley. And he said this, I love this, he goes, no man ever went to heaven alone. And what he meant was no man, no woman, no child, no person ever goes to heaven alone. It's something that we go together. We learn our faith from others, we share our faith with others, we share our faith together. This heaven business isn't about one person with God, it's about all of us moving to God together. And then Paul closes with this prayer. He says, now to him, to God, who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more, far more than all we can ask or imagine, to him be the glory in the church, in the church. Now that's new. You're not going to see that in other places in the Bible. Paul is making a very specific point here that it's in the church in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. That's open to everyone. It is in the church, friends, that these things are available. That's what Paul's saying, that this Holy Spirit power, this community of faith, this movement towards heaven is in the church, not Acts 2 exclusively, but in all of God's church all around the world. And so as our action step for this week, I want to invite you to pray for the persecuted church today, that we have it relatively easy here, but that's not true um, for many places Uh, in this map. Um, The darker the red, the worse the persecution. Places like North Korea, Somalia, Afghanistan, Yemen. Pick one. Pray for them this week. As we go back to school, as we get in our routines, as we do our thing, just remember 
that there's still plenty of places in our world that to follow Jesus will cost you your life if they find out about it. There are many articles around China this week about the crackdown on our brothers and sisters there. Uh, Mosques, as well as Buddhist temples, as well as Christian churches being torn down brick by brick by the communist government there. This is real, friends. This is very real. And our job is to participate in the unification of all things by Christ, the pulling together of his people from all over the world. Back when we had world wars, Rita Snowden tells a story uh, about the war in France. She says there were French soldiers and they brought the body of a fallen comrade to a French cemetery to have their friend buried there. The priest told them gently, as kindly as he could, that it was a Roman Catholic cemetery and he simply didn't have the authority um, unless their friend was Catholic. And so he asked them, he said, was your friend baptized a follower in the Roman Catholic Church? And they said they didn't know. There's nothing they ever talked about. And the priest said that he was very sorry. He said it as kindly as he could. But if that was really the case and they didn't know, then he could not permit the burial inside the burial ground of the church courtyard. So the soldiers took their friend, sadly, and they buried him just outside the fence of the churchyard. And the next day, they came back to check on their friend to mourn him and to make sure that the grave was all right. And to their astonishment, they could not find the grave. They couldn't find it. And they knew that it was only six feet from the fence of the burial ground, but search as they might, they could not find a trace of it. No trace of freshly dug soil. And as they were about to leave in perplexed bewilderment, the priest came up. And he told them that his heart had been touched by Christ that night. He was troubled because of his refusal to allow their dear friend to be buried in the churchyard. So he told them that early in the morning, God rose him up from his bed. And with his own hands, he had moved the fence to include their friend. That the priest, through the night, with his bare hands, had dug and moved the rocks and the mud and the the muck. And moved and brought that burial within the grace and fence of God of the church, of the soldier who had died for France, for him. And friends, this is what love can do. It's what love does. Rules and regulations put up fences, but love moves it. Love breaks down walls. Love brings in the Gentiles. Love brings in you. You are not your worst day. Jesus removed the fences between all people. Paul gave his life so that the world would know the truth of Jesus' love for everyone, for everyone. And I want you to think about your worst day. For Paul, on his worst day, he's there at the killing of Stephen. But in his last days, he wrote these words. Will you write it with me or say it with me? I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Well, that's a different life. You're not who you are on your worst day. You are loved by God. May today be a better day and a better day and a better day. Which way will you run? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for Paul. We thank you for Jesus who... Um, gave himself perfectly to the world and to Paul, particularly that we all might know, we all might live, we all might have a sense of your grace and your glory. We thank you that you are a God that breaks down walls, that breaks down prejudice, that loves all your children equally all around the world, and that you woo us to yourself, you call us to yourself. 
We pray that you would make us people of walls, that are people who break them down. And where we see them, we would break them down. And that you would change our hearts, both as individuals and as a church, and as a church universal. That where the crooked places are, that you will make them straight. Where the broken places are, you will heal us up. That all the world would know that you are King of kings and Lord of lords, a God of love for all people, for all time. In Jesus' mighty name, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.